Lesson 1 for December 26 through to January 1. Crisis in Heaven. Sabbath afternoon, December 26. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are beginning a New Year's study of the Word of God, Your Word. And as we approach this Word and look at this new series on redemption and rebellion, we just pray that Your Holy Spirit will guide us each one. As we look at the first lesson, we pray that in this time of rejoicing in so many parts of the world, there is still sadness and there is still sorrow. But there is hope as well, because you are there and ready to provide protection and help and strength for each one of us. Bless us as we open your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Revelation chapter 7 and verse 10. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Let's read that again, Revelation 7 and verse 10. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The law of love, this is a quote from Patriarchs and Prophets, page 34, being the foundation of the government of God, the happiness of all intelligent beings, depends upon their perfect accord with its great principles of righteousness. God desires from all his creatures the service of love, service that springs from an appreciation of his character. He takes no pleasure in a forced obedience, and to all he grants freedom of will, that they may render him voluntary service. End of quote. So long as all created beings acknowledged the allegiance of love, there was perfect harmony throughout the universe. All it took was one rebel and everything changed. Lucifer thought that he could do a better job than God did. He wanted God's position and the prestige that went with it. His lust for power resulted in a war in heaven, as we read in Revelation 12.7. By tricking Adam and Eve at the forbidden tree in Eden, Satan brought that war to earth, and we have been living with the consequences ever since. The plan of salvation is God's way of dealing with the rebellion and restoring the order and harmony that Satan had disrupted. Sunday, December 27, The Fall in Heaven Question. Read Isaiah chapter 14, verse 4, and verses 12 to 15. What descriptions of the king of Babylon indicate that he is speaking of someone much greater than a mere human ruler? Well, let's look at those verses, Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 4, that you will take up this proverb against the king of Babylon and say, Now the oppressor has ceased, the golden city ceased. And later on in that chapter 14, verses 12 to 15. How you were fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning! How you were cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations! For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation, on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, 
to the lowest depths of the pit. No earthly king has ever fallen from heaven, a truth that suggests that verses 12 to 15 are focusing on someone bigger than the king, even of Babylon. Furthermore, the images of ascending to heaven, of being in a position higher than angels, and of presiding over the assembly on the mountain in the far north, are all recognised descriptions of deity in the ancient Near East. Satan's ambitions are exposed clearly here, in this kind of dual prophecy. Jesus uses a similar tactic in his description of the destruction of Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 24. Although the disciples ask about the destruction of the temple, in his reply, Jesus describes both the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in AD 70 and the greater reality of the end of the world. In the same way, Isaiah describes the attributes of an earthly king, but applies it all to something much grander and larger than just a mere human king. Question. Read Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 2, and verses 12 to 19. How is Satan depicted here? Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 2. Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, Thus says the Lord God, Because your heart is lifted up, and you say, I am a God, I sit in the seat of gods, in the midst of the seas, yet you are a man and not a God, though you set your heart as the heart of a God. And then verses 12 to 19 of Ezekiel 28. Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers... I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading you became sinful with violence within, and you sinned. Therefore I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God. And I destroyed you. O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings, that they might gaze at you. You defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities, by the iniquity of your trading. Therefore I brought fire from your midst. It devoured you, and I turned you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who knew you among the peoples are astonished at you. You have become a horror, and shall be no more for ever. Ezekiel chapter 28 verse 13 describes a perfect being present in Eden, the garden of God, one decorated with all the kinds of precious stones later found on the breastplate of the high priest, and one commissioned as a guardian cherub at the throne of God. The perfect being, however, corrupted himself because of his beauty. By using human parallels, these glimpses allow us to understand divine realities. 
The prophets used that which is closer and more easily understandable in order to explain something that, in and of itself, might be harder for us to understand. What happens in heaven may be difficult for us on earth to grasp, but we are all able to understand the effects of the blatant and destructive political ambitions of earthly rulers. Isaiah and Ezekiel give us insight into the inexplicable transition at some point in history when all that was beautiful and perfect in God's order of things was marred by destructive ambition. And so to finish today, if a perfect being created by a perfect God in a perfect environment could mess himself up because of pride, what should that tell us fallen beings about how deadly this sentiment really is. Monday, December 28, The Prince of This World Question. Read John chapter 12, verse 31, chapter 14, verse 30, and chapter 16, verse 11. Why does Jesus call Satan the prince of this world? First of all, John chapter 12 and verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And further on in John chapter 14, verse 30. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. And John 16, verse 11, of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. When God first established Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, he entrusted them with the management of Eden. We read that in Genesis chapter 2 and verses 5 and 15. And the care of all creatures in the waters, skies and upon the earth in Genesis 1, 26 and 28. When Adam named all the animals, he demonstrated his stewardship over them. Usually the one with authority over something can give it a name. So by naming all the creatures, Adam was clearly demonstrating his status as the ruler of the world. When Adam lost that dominion, Satan very quickly filled the vacuum. Part of the restoration of the human race made possible by Christ's sacrifice at Calvary will be when the redeemed are given Adam's and Eve's privilege of reigning with God for the rest of eternity as kings and priests, as we read in Revelation chapter 1 verse 6 and chapter 5 verse 10. The opening chapters of the book of Job reveal to us just how extensive Adam's loss was. As we are given a glimpse into the throne room of the universe, we can also see how subordinate to nature the human race has become since the fall. Question. Read Job chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, and chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Chapter 1, verse 6, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking back and forth on it. And chapter 2, verse 1, 
Again there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking back and forth on it. Walking to and fro, or walking back and forth, is not just the act of a tourist. In Scripture, it is a sign of ownership. When God gave the land to Abraham, he told him to walk its length and breadth in Genesis 13.17, and similarly to Moses and Joshua in Deuteronomy 11.24 and Joshua 1.3. Satan, in a sense, is flaunting himself as the God of the world, or the God of this world, as it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. The introduction of Satan in the first two chapters of Job parallels what happened in Genesis chapter 3. Satan initiates trouble in paradise and then leaves the human victims to suffer in his wake. So, to finish today, what evidence can we see of Satan's work in this world? How can you draw hope from the promise that one day this whole mess will be over? Tuesday, November 29, War in Heaven We have no idea what war in heaven means. That is, we don't know what kind of physical battles were fought other than the casting out of Satan and his angels. The fact is, the Bible does not say anything about the physical aftermath of the heavenly conflict. It deals instead with the spiritual results here on earth. Question. Read Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through to 16. What does it tell us about the great controversy as it impacted heaven and then earth? Revelation chapter 12, beginning at verse 7. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of our Christ has come, for the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down." And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having a great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness to her place, where she is nourished for a time, and times, and half a time, from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. 
But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Note the positive way that John talks about the continuing war between the accuser of our brethren and the overcomers. He links it to salvation and the coming of the kingdom of God in verses 10 and 11. This positive theme is underscored throughout the chapter and is an important aspect of the great controversy. It is crucial that we note the overall context of chapter 12. Three great threats are described there, but each is followed by an incredible deliverance. In a dramatic vision, John is shown the struggle between Christ and Satan and how totally mismatched it all appears to be. For instance, a great red dragon that's Satan in Revelation 12.9, prepares to eat a baby, Jesus, about to be born. What baby could survive that? But he does, and is caught up to the throne of God. The dragon then attempts to persecute the mother, a symbol of the people of God, as we read in verse 13. How much can a mother who has just given birth defend herself against a dragon? but she also escapes miraculously in verse 14. In a third attempt to destroy God's chosen, the dragon causes a flood to gush out after the woman in verse 15. A woman against a flood, but again God steps in and delivers her in verse 16. The dragon now turns his attention to the remnant of the woman's seed. He is furious and wars against them. History clearly shows how God's people have been hunted, oppressed and persecuted over the years. Too often we see the impossibility of the struggle and wonder how the faithful will survive, forgetting that the story does not end there. It continues in Revelation chapter 14, where we see the faithful standing before God's throne. Thus they too have been delivered. And so to finish the day. At times, when you feel overwhelmed by forces greater than yourself, how can you learn to take courage in the Lord, who is greater than all things? Wednesday, December 30. Satan evicted. As we've seen, the war in heaven was not confined to heaven, but affected the earth too. For some time it appeared that Satan, the accuser of our brethren, as we read in Revelation 12.10, was still able to stand before God's throne and make accusations against God's people. Job was one biblical character who suffered this indignity. Question. Read Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through to 21. What was the meaning of Christ's words about Satan here? Well, let's begin verse 1 in Luke chapter 10. After these things, the Lord appointed seventy others also, and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. Then he said to them, The harvest truly is great. But the labourers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out labourers into his harvest. 
Go your way, behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. Carry neither money bag, knapsack, nor sandals, and greet no one along the road. But whatever house you enter, first say, Peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. If not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give, for the labourer is worthy of his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whatever city you enter, and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you, and heal the sick there, and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whatever city you enter, and they do not receive you, go out into its streets, and say, The very dust of your city which clings to us we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near you. But I say to you that it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you, and you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. He who hears you hears me, he who rejects you rejects me, and he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Then the seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice, because your names are written in heaven. In that hour Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit, and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent, and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. Before Jesus sent out the seventy, he instructed them not to take any spare clothing or money, in verse 4, and to ask God's blessing on their hosts, verse 5. He warned them that they were like lambs walking among wolves, in verse 3, a concern reflected in Revelation 12, where the dragon attempts to make war with God's people. On their joyous return, in verse 17, the disciples reported that the demons were subject to them, and this must have brought Jesus great joy. It is in this context that Jesus makes his statement about Satan falling like lightning from heaven. He warns the disciples that their joy must not be based on their success over demonic forces, but rather on having their names written in heaven. Verse 20. This reminder places human salvation firmly where it belongs, in the hand of our Saviour. It is Jesus, not we, who have defeated the enemy. Jesus' followers, however, are given the privilege of witnessing about the salvation Jesus has won. This episode in Luke chapter 10 verses 17 to 20 seems to link the work of witnessing that Jesus entrusts to his people with power over Satan in this great controversy. 
The work of witnessing erodes the power that Satan has over the people of this world and gives humankind opportunity to resume their original work of expanding the borders of God's kingdom. Power over our adversary is only possible because of the victory Jesus won at the cross. Paul states that Jesus disarmed principalities and powers and triumphed over them in Colossians 2.15. In him, God's people are triumphant. Satan's demise is assured. The ruler of this world will be cast out, John says in chapter 12, verse 31, never to malign God's people again. We can surely rejoice that the battle is the Lord's. And so to finish today... Rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Dwell on these words. What are they saying? And why is that such a great reason to rejoice? Thursday, December 31, The Continuing Battle Just as the reflexes of a twitching, freshly killed poisonous snake can cause it to reach around and inject its poison if you pick it up, Satan's bite is still deadly. He may have been defeated at Calvary, but the danger is not over yet. Question. Read John chapter 16, verse 13. How does Jesus warn his disciples of the continuing struggle against evil? John chapter 16, verse 33. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Jesus was clear that his followers would not have an easy time. But instead of focusing on the challenges, he focused on the victory that they could have in him. Reflecting on this guarantee, Paul assured the believers in Rome that God would crush Satan beneath their feet. Romans 16 verse 12, And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. And John told the last day church of the same thing. Their victory was assured through the blood of the Lamb, as we read yesterday in Revelation 12 and verse 13. Question. Read Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Who are the witnesses, and how do they encourage us? We'll also look at Hebrews chapter 11. First of all, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And now Hebrews chapter 11. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. 
by faith Abel, offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it he, being dead, still speaks. By faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death, and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world, and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. By faith Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland." And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel, and gave instructions concerning his bones. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents, because they saw he was a beautiful child, and they were not afraid of the king's command. By faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he looked to the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible." By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians attempting to do so were drowned. 
by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. By faith the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets who, through faith, subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of the weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trials of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God, having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Hebrews chapter 11 quickly sketches the lives of some of the famous heroes of faith. Abel offers a perfect sacrifice, and he is not forgotten even though he is dead. Enoch habitually draws near to God, so is taken straight to heaven to be with him. Noah warns of unseen events and offers salvation to a world drowned in sin. Abraham leaves a great civilization to go to a land of promise. Sarah gives birth to a promised son, even though she is too old to have a child. Moses chooses to suffer with his people, rather than to live in a king's palace. And Rahab witnesses to God's greatness, as we read in Joshua chapter 2, verses 9 to 11, and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that you, the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things our hearts were melted, neither did there remain any more courage in any one because of you, for the Lord your God, he is God in heaven, above and on earth beneath. These are among those who form the great cloud of witnesses spoken of in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1. They are not passive witnesses, like spectators watching a game. Instead, they actively witness to us that God is faithful, sustaining them in whatever struggles they faced. We are not alone in this great battle. So to finish today, look at some of those mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. Who were they? And what were they like? What encouragement can you draw from the fact that they were not flawless and faultless human beings, but were people with fears, passions and weaknesses, just like we all are?
Friday, January 1, and a Happy New Year to everybody who's listening. We do not know why sin arose in Lucifer. Ellen G. White tells us in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 35, that little by little Lucifer came to indulge the desire for self-exaltation. End of quote. The fact that this occurred in a perfect being reveals in a powerful way the reality of free will and free choice as part of God's government. God created all intelligent creatures as good. They were moral beings with a good moral nature. There was nothing in them leaning toward evil. How then did sin arise in Lucifer? The answer is that there is no answer. There is no excuse for sin. If an excuse for it could be found, then God could ultimately be held responsible for it. As humans, we are used to cause-effect relationships. But sin does not have a cause. There is simply no reason for it. It's irrational and nonsensical. Lucifer could not justify his actions, especially as one so favoured of God. Somehow, though, through abusing free will, Lucifer corrupted himself and from being the light-bearer, he became Satan the adversary. Though there's a lot we don't understand, we should understand enough to know just how careful we ourselves need to be with the sacred gift of free will and free choice. And that brings us to our four discussion questions for this week. 1. Jealousy played a large part in Satan's rebellion against God. In your own experience, what kind of damage has jealousy caused? How can we learn to fight against this very common emotion? 2. Dwell more on the amazing gift of free will and free choice. How do we use these gifts every day? Look at some of the terrible consequences of the wrong use of this gift. How can we learn to use it correctly? 3. Think about the role of the law in the context of free will and free choice. The mere fact that God has a law should be a testimony to the reality of free will. After all, what is the purpose of a moral law unless you have moral creatures who can choose to follow it? Dwell more on the implications of the law and what it says about human freedom. And four... There's a powerful tendency, especially in certain parts of the world, to reject the idea of a literal devil. Why is such a view so contrary to even the most basic understanding of the Bible? Inside Story. Our mission story this week is titled Light Bearer to the Amazon. The longest river in South America is the Amazon, flowing from the Andes Mountains of Peru to the Atlantic Ocean, a distance of nearly 4,000 miles or 6,400 kilometres. A mission to reach people living there was started by Pastor Leo and Jesse Hallowell in the 1930s. Navigating the Amazon in their handcrafted wooden boat, the Lazerio, light-bearer in Portuguese, the Hallowells brought hope and healing to countless people living along this famous waterway. 
Many mission stories have come from the Hallowell's experience. Below is a favourite written by Charlotte Ishkanen. Angels on the Amazon Pastor Hallowell's did the Lazerio along the river while his 15-year-old son stared into the jungle hoping to see a jaguar, the jungle leopard. Overhead, a brilliant macaw flew by, squawking loudly. Then the boat's engine slowed, and Jack noticed three well-dressed men waving at the Lazerio from a canoe. "'Hello!' one man called out. "'Can you give us a tow upstream?' Pastor Hallowell knew it was dangerous to give hitchhikers a ride, but something impressed him to stop. "'Throw them a line, Jack,' he called to his son. Jack threw the men the rope, and the men attached it to their boat. Two men climbed aboard and stood beside Pastor Hallowell as he steered the boat up the river. Suddenly, one of the men grabbed the wheel and turned the boat around. The boat shuddered and moved suddenly away from the river bank and out into the middle of the river. The sudden movement nearly threw Jack overboard. Pastor Hallowell stared at the waters they had just crossed. Not twenty feet from where they had been heading, the jagged points of hundreds of rocks lay just beneath the surface of the water. If the boat had hit those rocks, it would have been ripped apart. Whew! Pastor Hallowell exclaimed. Thank you. You saved our boat and probably our lives. The man smiled but said nothing as he steered the boat through the rocky waters. Then the man gave the wheel back to Pastor Hallowell. Thank you for the ride, sir, the man said. If you stop, we'll get out now. This is strange, thought Pastor Hallowell. There are no signs of a village nearby. Nevertheless, he stopped the boat, and the two men climbed back into their canoe and pushed off into the current. "'Watch where they go,' Leo called to Jack. "'Dad, they've disappeared,' Jack called. Leo turned from the wheel. The river was empty. There was no bend in the river, no ripples in the water. The three men and their boat had disappeared.' This week's lesson has been read by Dr. Percy Harold in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired. It is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department and through the services of Hope Channel. Remember, God is always faithful. Faithful.